Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, uh, now, not not many of you uh, know this, uh, but uh, a few years ago, a few years ago, um, I, 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 was, I was converted. Just a few years ago, I was converted. Like before that moment, I was blind, but now I see. Before that moment, I was totally ignorant and in the dark. I had no clue, but now I get what my friends have been telling me for years. I'm not talking about my conversion to the Christian faith. I'm talking about my conversion to the fandom of Star Wars. <laughs> Oscar's one of those friends. And see, my, my wife and I, we didn't grow up watching the original Star Wars films, which I know is like a huge cultural faux pas, and it's like crazy that we found each other, right? Uh, but we were like a few years into our marriage when we found out that we both hadn't seen the original Star Wars films. And so all our friends were like, how have you not seen any of the films? They're like, have you seen the new ones even? And we're like, no, we haven't seen any of them. They're like, oh my gosh, what a crime. And so uh, this one couple, these friends of ours at our old church, they, they gave us their, their full DVD set. Right, extended edition included the three original films plus the, the three prequels that, that came out. And they told us, when they gave us the set of six DVDs, they told us what everyone else was telling us. They're like, definitely watch the originals. But if you don't have the time or, or the capacity or, or the stamina for it, like you don't have to watch the prequels, is what they said. Because they said it's not a big deal because the, the prequels, they kind of stink anyways. That's what everyone was saying. And so I was, I was thinking about that this week, about what a bummer it is when you have this just epic, legendary uh, story with all this lore, and then you have this just lame prequel. <laughs> this lame prequel. Like just a couple days ago, uh, I was reading about how Suzanne Collins announced an upcoming prequel to her, her Hunger Games series, and everyone's like, oh, we're really excited, but we hope it's actually good, right? Because typically... Prequels don't live up to the hype. They typically don't do well. But every now and then, you'll have a great prequel. Right? Every now and then, you'll have a great prequel. Think like Rogue One. That was a good prequel. Right? Monsters University. Or if books count, you got the magician's nephew in Chronicles of Narnia. And see, a worthy prequel, what makes a, a prequel worthwhile and, and, and worthy of our attention is when it provides like real substance to the storyline. That's what makes a good prequel. And now Jeff Metters, he's an Acts 29 pastor in Houston. He describes our second doctrine of grace as sort of like the prequel to the Christian faith. I think he uses that language because of how it sort of sets the stage for the epic story of salvation. And so when we're, we're looking at, at just the, the scope of all that God's grace is to us, the second doctrine of grace that we're talking about this morning is the doctrine of unconditional election. Unconditional election. Unconditional election is defined as this. It teaches that God sovereignly chooses or elects to save a number of people throughout history, not on the basis of anything that is in us, but according to the sheer riches of His amazing grace. 
is a mind-boggling doctrine. It it, kind of can rub us the wrong way sometimes. It really stretches us, but I want us to see in the next half hour how amazing this is, that God sovereignly chooses to save a number of people throughout history, not on the basis of anything in us, but according to the sheer riches of his amazing grace. The Bible teaches us that. So we have to deal with that. We have to press into that. And we have to learn to see how it makes God's grace so amazing. This doctrine is sometimes referred to as the doctrine of predestination. Now, if you've heard either of those terms before, predestination or or sovereign choice or election, you might know that that this, this point of theology, this doctrine is steeped in controversy. People get in debates over it, theological debates over it. Like, no, that's not what it says. It actually says this. Or, or, or it's easy for us to misunderstand it. But I think that the reason that that happens is because this is just one of those points of theology that's just really hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's so big. It's so ground. It's so mysterious. It's just hard for us to wrap our minds around it. But, but, but I think it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be that way. God is bigger than us. He's the transcendent one. He's the one that exists outside of space and time. And so when it comes to the way that that the nature of his salvation, his grace, his amazing grace works, we should expect that there are elements of it that just go, man, this is just so much for me to comprehend. And so we're going to look at a few different scriptures this morning, but my hope is that by the end of our time that you're going to marvel, just to marvel at the prequel to your faith and see a fresh angle of God's amazing grace. And so if you haven't already, from a scripture reading, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now in, in this passage, it's almost like we're seeing salvation from God's point of view. We spent some time in, in talking about total depravity last week uh, in Ephesians 2, talking about how we were dead in our sins, but, but God, who's rich in our mercy, made us alive in Christ. And so Ephesians 2, in, in many ways, was sort of like a, a view of our salvation from, from, from our perspective, from human perspective. But in Ephesians 1, what we see is the glory of salvation from God's point of view. And we see that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are so much bigger and higher than our thoughts. And in in chapter 1, verse 3, we begin to get a glimpse into God's sovereign ways, his perspective. And so begin reading in verse 3 with me. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Man, there's a lot in those verses, huh? Do you see the doctrine of unconditional election and predestination in these verses? I mean, it's so clear. Do you see him in these verses? All right, then we can pray and go home. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but remember, it's, it's not enough for us to just see these doctrines in the text. I want us to experience them, to feel the weight of them to see what makes God's grace so amazing. Like sometimes we treat top shelf theology like this, like an exercise in just knowing all the right answers. But, but I want you to experience the beauties of this doctrine in our time together. And so it, it's, it's like how, it's like think about how like when, when my wife, uh, Alyssa and I, when, when, we, when we were dating uh, years ago, um, and I started asking her all these questions, getting to know her about her upbringing and her interests, all her likes and dislikes. 
Imagine like when we're having one of those conversations, she leans over and asks me like, what? why am I being so inquisitive, right? Why are you asking all these questions? And, and imagine like I just, I grab her hand, I look her in the eyes, and I say, man, just so I can school everyone else when I get in debates about you. That's why I'm asking these questions. I just want to school everyone else when I get in debates about you. Of course not. That's not the proper response. I ask all these questions because I want to know her. And by knowing more about her, I can love her well. And like theology like this, top shelf theology might seem impractical, but I want us to see how it is actually intensely practical. It might seem like esoteric, but I want us to see that it's actually incredibly beautiful and amazing that when rightly understood, the doctrine of unconditional election can begin to stir our hearts to greater love for God and neighbor, to deeper journeys in humility and in holiness. So the first thing I want us to consider this morning from the scriptures is that unconditional election is necessary. It's necessary. Why is it necessary? Because there's no hope for salvation apart from God's sovereign electing grace. Last week we looked at how we're all spiritually dead totally corrupted by nature and choice, guilty of sin and in desperate need of grace. And if we're really as bad and as helpless uh, like the Bible says that we are, then, then what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Why does anyone get saved at all if that's how bad we are, if we're really spiritually dead in our sins? Why does anyone get saved at all? The answer is an unconditional election. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, man, there's a mystery behind this. But the Bible teaches us that if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, it's because God decided to love you long before you even knew you needed to be saved. Before you were even conceived in your mother's womb, God knew you. He knew you, he foreknew you, and he loved you. Look at Ephesians 1 again. Paul, who knows what it means to be spiritually dead and apart from God, is found gushing about God's amazing electing grace. He burst out in words of worship because he knows that this is our only hope. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, he breaks out in doxology and worship. Blessed be God, the one who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, praise God for all the wild ways that he continually blesses us, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. You see, every good story, every good story starts with some form of those words, once upon a time. Once upon a time. Those words, I mean, that's a way of saying, look, here's where our story begins Here's how we got here to, to our, our scene. And what's so amazing about the doctrine of election, about what the Bible, the mysterious, uh, the, what the Bible mysteriously teaches about predestination, what's, what's so amazing about this is that it tells us that once upon a time, there was grace. Once upon a time, there was grace. Grace for you and me was not God's plan B after the fall. It was plan A. It was for the praise, as Paul says, of the, his glorious grace. Once upon a time, there was 
Grace, once upon a time, long before there was an Orange County or even a U.S. of A., long before there was a Protestant Reformation, long before Christianity originally spread from the ancient Near East, even before the days that Jesus walked the earth, before King David, before the Exodus with Moses, before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, before mankind was formed from the dust of the ground before there were creatures roaming that ground and in, in, in the air and in the sea, before God spoke the universe into existence, spinning the galaxies into their places, before the Lord said those first words, let there be light. Before all that, there was grace. Planned grace, sovereign grace, the story of amazing grace to an undeserving people was formed in the mind of God before the foundations of our universe were ever laid. Before the events on the first pages of Scripture even unfolded, the triune God of the universe chose which totally depraved ill-deserving sinners would be quickened to new life through his mercy in Jesus Christ. Mind-boggling, amazing, mysterious, yet beautifully true in the scriptures. And again, this is a mystery for sure, but it's a mystery that should make us marvel. And Ephesians 1 isn't the only place that we see this concept of election. I mean, we see this in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, God unconditionally chose and called out a people for himself, right? The nation of Israel under the Old Covenant. He chose them for himself. Like, where, where, where do we see that? Like, all over the place. All over the place, all over the Old Testament. And look at this one verse in, in Joshua uh, chapter 24. Joshua, the successor to Moses, he said to all the people, to all of God's people, he, he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. What does the Lord say? He says, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. In other words, they worshipped idols. They were totally depraved. They were dead in their sins. Verse 3, then God says, then I took your father Abraham. I took uh, that, that, that word, that language in Nehemiah 9. It, it says chose. I took, I chose. I elected your father Abraham from beyond the river and I led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abraham, the the. The, the original patriarch of the nation of Israel, serving other gods, and then God took him, chose him from beyond the river, and led him through the land of Canaan, multiplied his offspring to the nation of Israel. And then we, we also see the uh, uh, doctrine of election like all over the New Testament too. I mean, we see that in places like we just read all throughout the Old Testament. We also see this in the New Testament. I mean, we already kind of read about it in Ephesians 1. But what about this one part I want you to see in, in the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 13, you got Paul and Barnabas. They're preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch, preaching to everyone, by the way. Like, some people think that belief in the doctrine of election will actually hinder evangelism. But we actually see that for the apostles, it fueled evangelism. And Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch and they're sharing the gospel to throngs of people. And here's what it says in chapter 13, verse 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, heard their gospel message, they all began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. 
So Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel to all these people in Antioch. And who are the people that believed, that received the gospel message? As many as were appointed to eternal life. Wild, right? Like in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, he writes about this vision of heaven that he has. And and he talks about the book of the life of the Lamb. Other translations call it the Lamb's book of life with the names of everyone throughout history who belong to Jesus. And you know what's crazy about this Lamb's book of life? It says twice in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13 and 17, that the names in that book were written before the foundation of the world. Before humanity first stepped onto the scene. Before the foundations of the world were set followers of Jesus, God's people, had their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Man, just think on that for a moment. There's a spiritual book in the heavens right now that has your name in it if you're a true follower of Christ. Your name is in that book. If you truly belong to our Lord Jesus Christ, then your name is in that book, written in ink older than the core of our planet. Wild, right? just makes you marvel. It's amazing grace. Now, the second thing I want us to see is that unconditional election is unconditional. Crazy, right? Unconditional election is unconditional. And and this right here is really where where the scandal of unconditional election comes. The reason that it offends us, the reason that many of us don't like it, it offends us because we want so badly to believe that we contribute something to our salvation. We want to believe that. None of us would actually like admit that out loud, but if we dig down deep enough into our, our hearts, we want to believe that God loves us, maybe because he found something lovable in us. Maybe we were smart enough to figure out that the resurrection is true and that Jesus is worth it. Maybe we think that we're good enough or we're admired enough to make God go, man, I, got, I call dibs, right? I want that person on my team. But the doctrine of unconditional election tears down all forms of pride, all forms of self-righteousness, all forms of I'm owed this. When you understand how you were saved and when God chose to save you and how you bring nothing to the table other than your need for grace, then pride becomes impossible. Self-righteousness gets obliterated. I want you to turn for a moment with me to Romans chapter 8. Everyone loves Romans 8, right? We put, it, we put it up on our walls and on our coffee cups. Romans 8, verse 28, right? Everyone loves that verse. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Everyone loves that verse. It's a beautiful verse. Just as beautiful and amazing as the next verse. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, some of us, some of us who, who don't like the idea of unconditional election or the teachings on predestination or have a hard time with wrestling with, with it, will say things like, you know, God, God knew 
Who is going to choose him in the future? Like, he looked down the corridors of time. He knew who was going to choose him in the future. And then with that future knowledge of everyone who would take their faith and place it in Christ, then, then God, knowing that, looking down through the corridors of time and knowing who would choose him, he, he put their names down in that Lamb's Book of Life in the beginning. And that's why it says God foreknew few problems with that. First, God is bigger than time. He's the author of time. He's not bound by time. He doesn't have to look down the corridor of time to figure out what's going to happen. He's not surprised by anything. He has all knowledge at all times. Tomorrow isn't something that happens to him. He's just there, always completely holy and other than us, transcendent than us. He transcends all time. Secondly, when, when, when the Bible use that, uses that word for new, what he's saying is that, that, that he knew them in, 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 in a special way. Like he loved them. Like in, in the book of Genesis, when it says that Adam knew Eve, it wasn't saying like, oh, like he knew her name or she was acquainted with her. It's like he knew her in the fullest sense of that word. He loved her intimately, knew her well, desired to be with her. And so the Bible says that God foreknew that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It's saying that, no, those whom God loved knew in a special way he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Thirdly, God does not respond or react to us ever. He doesn't respond or react to us. He's always the initiator. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that the reason that we love is because He first loved us. Remember our time in Ephesians 2 last week? The doctrine of total depravity? In the, in the words of Ephesians 2, it says that we're, we're born what? What in our sins? Dead. Dead in our sins. Look at, look at verse uh, 1 again with me of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All of us, apart from God's grace, were dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, I mentioned this last week, but there's this well-meaning gospel analogy that says, you know, it's like we're all drowning in the ocean, trying to save ourselves, but we just keep drowning until God throws us a rope, throws us a life raft, and then by our own free will, we just have to reach out and grab it and to get pulled in. A more biblical analogy would be that we're just dead at the bottom of the sea, a rotting corpse, dead in our trespasses and sins, until, until the Spirit of God dove from the shore to the ocean floor to carry us to the surface and breathe new life into us. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. In John chapter 11, there's a good friend of Jesus named Lazarus who, who was dead. Right? He, he died. He got sick and he died. And, and I mean, he was fully dead. They buried him. He was dead for a few bit, days to the point that when Jesus enters his tomb to raise him from the dead, the ESV says there was an odor. The old King James says he stinketh. <laughs> when you stinketh, that's pretty dead, right? That's pretty dead. Lazarus didn't cry out, Hey, Jesus, help. I'm dead. Save me. He didn't raise his hand or grab hold of Jesus when he walked in. He was dead. A dead thing can grab hold of nothing. A dead thing can't tread water. A dead thing can't reach out. A spiritually dead person can do nothing at all until he or she is quickened to new life. And so what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He cried out, the Bible says, in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! 
Lazarus, come forth. And through a miracle of the power of Jesus' voice, a power of Jesus' initiation, Lazarus rose from death to life. By grace you have been saved. Jesus will go on to say that what he did to Lazarus is what he came to do to all people in a spiritual sense. To bring us from death to life. That's the problem with the corridors of time theory. If God had to first peer through the corridors of time to see who would believe, he would see that nobody would choose him apart from his sovereign electing grace. No one would choose him. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Some people seek for God. Is that what it says? No, it says no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. And some of you are like, no, like I remember, like I, I, I was seeking after God. I was seeking. And so the question is, why were you seeking after him? Why were you seeking after him? When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus didn't say, you know, you just got to seek after me. You got to come find me, right? That's not what Jesus said. He said, you must be born again. God must do something in you mysteriously, miraculously. He must do something in you before you ever begin to ask questions about and seek him. Man, when you get this, and I know there's tension there as a paradox here, and it's mysterious. Man, I know there's so many different layers to this that are just like, what about this? What about this? But the thing is, the Bible teaches this. And when you start to sort of like surrender to that, this becomes a liberating truth. That God is unconditionally gracious. We bring nothing to him other than our need. Nothing you can do will prove yourself worthy in God's presence. Jesus did that. Nothing you can do will enter you into a right relationship with him. Jesus did that. Under the surface, man, we all want to contribute something to the equation, but that is the scandal of God's grace. We add nothing to the equation. Jesus paid it all, full, complete. Unconditional election is, in the fullest sense of that word, unconditional, without condition. There's nothing we need to do, nothing that we have to do. We're purely at the mercy of the grace of a great an amazing God. Number three, unconditional election does not betray our human responsibility. This is where the mystery comes in. Unconditional election does not in any sense betray our responsibility to choose Christ. We still choose him in a very real sense. Some people worry that this doctrine somehow diminishes our personal testimonies, right? That, that, that we, we worry that if, if, we, if, man, if we surrender to belief in this doctrine, then, then, then somehow that, that moment in time when we decided, when we chose to follow Jesus, that, that somehow that becomes less meaningful if we acknowledge that God chose us first. But man, that could be further from the truth. Some of you might be thinking like, okay, so pastor, what is it? What is it? Does, does, is, is it that God chooses us or is that we choose God? Because, you know, it, it, like it doesn't, it doesn't, like how can those both be true? Is it that, that, that he chooses us? Or is it that we choose him? And according to the Bible, the answer is clearly yes. Yes. God chooses us and we choose him. This is where the mystery comes in, because that's a paradox, right? That's a paradox. It's two things that, that seem kind of, they shouldn't reconcile, they shouldn't exist at the same time. That's what a paradox is. But man, this is a beautiful paradox. That God is 100% sovereign in his saving us. But somehow, mysteriously, we are still 100% responsible 
That's why Joseph could say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. They were responsible for their decision, but God was responsible for sovereignly making good come out of it. 100% sovereign, our God, in saving us. 100% responsible, we are. It's not about finding a balance, but it's about embracing the beauty of that paradox. And if you think about it, some of the most beautiful elements of our Christian faith that sets it apart from all other worldviews and religions, the most beautiful elements of the Christian faith are found in paradoxes like this. Jesus is fully God and what? Fully man. That math doesn't add up. But man, if you deny that, if you try to make it like 50-50, then you lose the power of the gospel. God is one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. Father is not the Son and not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. But somehow, one God Unity and diversity. It's a paradox. Or how about how God is both the just judge and the justifier? These are all paradoxes. In the scriptures, we see they're all true. They're all good. And when we understand them to the point that it just causes us to surrender and, and marvel at the complexity of it, they become beautiful to us. Timothy Keller he says in one of his commentaries, he says the biblical gospel is so supernatural that it always combines qualities that by natural reason and culture we just cannot keep together. It makes sense that a God who is other than us in the fullest sense of that phrase, transcendent and holy, would have a plan of salvation that no human being could have ever possibly come up with on their own. It would make sense for God, if he were real, to have a plan of salvation, of salvation that would completely turn on its heads all of our natural reason and cultural proclivities. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, he was once asked to reconcile these two truths, that God chooses us and that we choose God. He was asked to reconcile this from the Gospel of John. He was asked specifically about this verse. In John chapter 6, verse 37, look at it. It says, all that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so in this verse, we see that the Father gives people to the Son. And we see that people choose to come to Christ. So in this verse, this single verse, we see God's choice and human choice in one verse. Spurgeon was asked by a group of people to, to reconcile these two truths. And, and here's what he said. He says, I never reconcile friends. I never reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, Spurgeon says, have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. Where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me since I have given up my mind to believing them both. Spurgeon simply embraced both God's sovereignty and human responsibility as both clearly taught in the pages of Scripture. Some guys, some guys, like some of my, my pastor friends will talk to me about how they, 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 they'll just try and strike a balance between the two, find a halfway point. But, but I don't like that language because it applies that they're really at odds with each other. You've got to find a balance on the, on the, on the teeter-totter. You don't have to find the middle ground. You just have to fully embrace both and just marvel at the mystery of it. Our time-bound, creaturely perspective will never get our minds around it fully. But we don't need to. 
We don't need to. We just need to let it keep us humble and thankful. And so with that, I want us to close now by, by, by talking about what the doctrine of unconditional election should now produce in us. What should the doctrine of unconditional election, if we submit to it, if we surrender to it, if we believe in it, what should that actually produce in, a, in us? First, it should destroy our pride. It should destroy our pride. The doctrine of unconditional election should make us humble because one, just the sheer mystery of it, that it's hard to wrap our minds around. Like in some sense, we just have to submit ourselves to that, that, that old uh, prayer in Isaiah when he said, Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my, my thoughts. And so it, it, it destroys our pride by just humbling us with the mystery of how it all works. But it also makes us humble because it reminds us that God didn't choose you because you're amazing. God didn't choose you because you were worth it. He found worth in you despite your worthlessness. He chose you because, not that you're amazing, but he chose you because he's amazing. Out of the mystery of his will, Ephesians 1 says. So I, I remember this one time uh, that I, I went to a, a friend's like beach, beach party. And a relative of theirs uh, comes up to me at this beach, and he sees me. You know, I'm like this stranger he's never met before with tattoos. Uh, and so he introduces himself, and he decides he's going to witness to me. <laughs> and so he goes, hey, Chris, do you see this sand in my hand? How many pieces do you think there are? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, man, like probably hundreds, right? He says, now how much sand do you think is at this beach and in all the oceans? And then he goes, this sand represents, he pick, takes the sand in his hand, and he's like, this sand represents your life. And all the other sand throughout the globe represents all eternity. And he goes, did you know that one day your life is going to end and you're going to spend the rest of eternity in one of two places? And when he said that, I'm like, okay, I know what he's doing, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, hey, man, just so you know, like I'm a follower of Jesus, right? Like Jesus is my Lord and Savior, uh, actually pastor a new church, right? And he's like, oh, no. And so he's like, that's so wild. And he's like rejoicing. And he's like, oh, brother. He's like, I had no idea. He like gave me a big hug. And he starts talking about, uh, about uh, how the rest of his family that was here at this beach party, how, how, how hardly any of them know Jesus. And, he, and he, tell, he puts his arm around me and he's like, you know, brother, I pray for these people all the time. You know what makes the, what the difference is, though, between you and, and me and, and my family over there? He's like, he literally said this. This isn't just a sermon illustration that I made up. He literally said, we were smart enough to figure this out. We're smart enough to figure it out. He's like, I read these books. I study all the smart arguments. And I'm, I'm just, just, just praying that, that you know, one day I'll have the right argument. And he's like asking me for advice. And he's like, dude, like, help me. Like, what's, what's, what's been a smart argument that's helped you and your evangelistic efforts? He's like, the difference between you and me and my family over there is that we were smart enough to figure this out. And I'm hearing him say this, and I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> I wasn't smart enough. The Bible says God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. So the fact that you and I are followers of Jesus actually kind of prove how foolish we are compared to the rest of your family. It's a mystery. Why does God choose Israel, the smallest and weakest nation, versus the empires that roamed the earth at the time? Why does God choose chose Jacob and not Esau? Why did God choose Peter and not Judas? We don't know. We don't know. But we know that every single one of them, the nation of Israel, Jacob, Peter, you and me, without God's sovereign grace, Hopeless, left dead in our sins, left to think we're smarter than we are, we are, that we're better than we are. 
You see, the doctrine of unconditional election, it destroys our pride. It reminds us that there is nothing in us that contributes to our salvation. It's from God, from, it's, it's all God from beginning to end, and from beginning, beginning, beginning to the very final end. Secondly, the doctrine of election secures our assurance. It secures our assurance. Look at that, that, that passage in Romans 8. Um, I don't know if I have, it is on there. Uh, Romans 8, verse 29 through 31, which says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us. You see, man, if, 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 you, if you ever find yourself uh, just feeling discouraged in your faith, feeling like, man, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it because I just, I'm struggling with these doubts. I'm struggling with this temptation. I'm struggling with these sins. I, I know I'm not perfect. Does God really love me? Romans 8 says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. God is our Savior, Redeemer from past, present, future. He secures our assurance. He keeps us through to the end. Do you believe in Jesus? If you do, then man, rest in the promise of Romans 8 that God's going to keep me. Time will tell if, if, if you're faithful to the end, and I pray that by the grace of God that you are. In the meantime, let Romans 8 preach good news to your soul. God knew me before time, predestined me, called me, justified me, glorified me. Thirdly, Unconditional election actually empowers our evangelism. It empowers our evangelism. Some of you are scratching your head, like, how does that work? Because, I mean, if God, if God sovereignly chooses and elects and saves a number of people, then I can just kind of sit, sit back and just let him do his thing. No, because God commands us to. The means by which God saves people is through the preaching of the gospel. Why do we pray? We pray because we believe that God sovereignly works through our prayers. There's a mystery to it, right? We pray knowing that God can work through our prayers. He has the power to do that. 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells his protege, Timothy, why he's just going at it. In preaching the gospel. He says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 10, he says, therefore I endure everything, all the suffering, all the heartache, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Man, when you know that in every community, in every nation, tribe, and tongue, there are people that God says he has chosen. He has elected. He has chosen to be adopted into his family. Man, that will, that, will, that will cause us to preach the gospel all the more. That will cause us to go to the ends of the earth. That will give us uh, unction and bravery and courage in talking to our coworkers and our family members and our neighbors. Man, I pray that the power of God would bring this dead person to life in the mystery of his sovereign will. And we can, we can, we can pray for that and labor for that in our evangelism and we give God all the glory when people get saved and we can rest in his plan when people don't. Lastly, 
unconditional election fuels our worship and praise. Fuels our worship and praise. We read this in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 when Paul said, God predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To what? To the praise of his glorious grace. When you press into this doctrine, when you drink the, from the theology off the top shelf in terms of, of, of this, and man, it should, it should cause you to marvel. It should cause you to praise God for his glorious grace. It's glorious. It's amazing. It's multifaceted. It's amazing. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a point where the four Pevensey children realize that, that there are actually four empty thrones in Care Paravel waiting for them. They found out that there were prophecies about them. And there were uh, markings for them on the thrones uh, of these four empty thrones. Before they even got there, there were markings on the thrones that signified each of the four of them, kind of like having names written in the book of life. And when it all starts to come together for them, at the end of the book, they're just blown away. They're like, wait, after all of this, after all of this, there was a sovereign plan. There was a sovereign plan to bring us here. We have seats at Care Paravel, seats in this castle set aside for us. They just marveled at this sovereign plan that they somehow just mysteriously got to participate in. That's the proper response. It's not pride. It's not boasting of your place up in this theological ivory tower. I understand the doctrine of election. That's not the purpose of it. That's not the purpose of the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace should amaze us. We should marvel at them. The proper response is worship. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.